Thank you so very much. Let's take our Bibles, please, and go to the book of Job. J-O-B in the Bible, right before Psalms, the book of Job. If you need sermon notes, then the ushers have those. We're going to Job chapter 15. The ushers will move through the odd time. They'll just raise your hand, and they'll hand you some of those notes. Otherwise, they're located in the, in the bulletin. Uh, one of the sets of notes so you can follow along. We're doing a series on the book of Job, and we're in Job chapter 15, 16, 17 here this morning as we continue. When we were out west with the Newtons, we came across a variety of different things you could pick up. There are stones that are called geodes that you can buy, and they look something like this when you, when you get them in the store, and they charge you a a ton for these things. And inside, when you break them open, you can find inside of them, when they're broken, all kinds of different crystals, crystal formations. And some are different colors, so you can buy this, take it home, take a hammer, break the thing wide open, and then you get all these beautiful different settings. Some are different colors, some are a variety of different uh, makeup inside. But maybe you'll end up with one that we did. We uh, took, you know, got a couple, brought them home, and thought this would be fun for the kids to be able to break these things open and to be able to fool with them. And as we were doing that, we broke that one that I showed you open by taking just a regular hammer and hitting it a few times and broke. This one is a little bit more stubborn. This one, we took that hammer, hit it a few times, it didn't break. So I thought, well, naturally, if it didn't break with that hammer, you get a much bigger hammer. Okay, so we got a bigger hammer, put it on the patio ground, hit it, and if it's not, you know, if not tapping open, then what do you have to do? Hit it even harder. And so all of a sudden I noticed that my patio developed a chip in it from this stone. So I thought, well, that's dumb. Okay, I'm not going to have my patio or my garage floor, both of them we had scraped up by that point. So we got a block, a cement block, and put this on top and got a bigger hammer. The cement block broke fine. <laughs> But this thing did not break open. So we thought, okay, let's take what pieces of cement we slab and let's get a sledgehammer. It did not break open. So this, I don't know what's inside, but I just know this was really hard to deal with. Job chapter 15, 16, and 17 is my hard geo of the series so far. I think the whole book is hard, but I didn't think I'd run into such a hard-hearted passage as I did in this one. In this section... After studying it and studying it and studying it the last couple of weeks, there is something inside here that I think is beautiful. Absolutely a tremendous crystal. It is all about the rock of our salvation, the rock of ages, the chief cornerstone. I think in this section of Scripture, we see Jesus in the book of Job like we've never seen him before. It is just a fascinating text. I want you to notice a couple things, first of all. As we go through the chapter, I want you to see that Job experienced a lot of what Jesus will experience in the future. As you go through and just page through the, the chapter and get the setting, let, let's get the scene. Jesus came and he was sinless. Job is not sinless. But Job was an outstanding godly man, one that God bragged about. And Job is there in that ancient time, and all of a sudden, after God brags upon him, he suffers some severe calamities by God's choice, in God's will. And some of those calamities include the loss of his property, the loss of his co-workers, the loss of his ten children, his status. He's no longer a leader in the community. People want to avoid him. He's sitting out in a dump. And then he loses his health. But like Christ, all that suffering, he's going to remain loyal to God Almighty. And what happens is he has three friends come, and they spend some time with him, and they're going to talk with him, and they're going to be there to comfort him. 
And those three friends are come from a long distance and they are wealthy, influential people. They are leaders of that region, as we'll see. They are peoples that are giving advice. They are, they are influential individuals. And so they come and they have multiple conversations with Job. That takes up the majority of the book. They speak, Job speaks. One, then the next one speaks, Job speaks. Next one speaks, Job speaks. Then they rehearse again. The first one speaks a second time. That's where we're at today. Then Job answers him. The second one speaks a second time. Job answers him again. The third one will speak. Job answers. Then it happens a third time. The first two speak and Job answers. And so the, most, the majority of the book is their conversation. What they say to Job and how Job responds to them. And so we're in that section where now the leader of the group, Eliphaz, who is the oldest, the first one to speak, he is going to talk to Job and he's going to have a conversation. In his comments, chapter 15, here's what we learn. Okay, you can read it through in its entirety and you can meditate on it for yourself. But just for our sake of study, give you some background. What happens is Eliphaz makes the comment several times, we are wise people. We are extremely you know, understanding of the issues. Look at verse 9. What do you know that we don't know? What understanding, and what understandest thou which is not in us? Jump down to verse 17. He says, I will show thee, hear me, and that which I have seen I will declare. So Eliphaz is confident. He is, me and my buddies here, we are really, really wise. The reason he's probably saying that is because Job in the last chapter has questioned their, their wisdom and said, are you guys really that wise? And so their retort and their response, something you'll see as you read through the chapter, they're very traditional. They're very, what did the fathers do? What did the ancients say? Go down to verse 10. With us are both the gray-headed, man, gray-headed and very aged men. That is, with us in what we're saying. We are supported by the older generations. We are supported by the ancestors who have spoken. They are, and even some of those who are much older than your father, Job. We jump down a little bit further, verse 18. Which wise men have told their, from their fathers and have not hid it? So what we're telling you, Job, is what has been passed on from generation to generation to generation. Therefore, we're accurate. We're correct. They will make sure that Job understands, and they repeat it again. Job, we know a lot about God that you don't know. Jump down to verse 9. What knowest thou that we don't know? What understandest that thou that is not in us? With us are both the gray-haired, aged men, much older than your father, are the consolations of God small with you? They go on. And is there any secret thing with you? And so we know. Actually, uh, verse 8. Should I should have put that down. Hast thou heard the secret of God? Do you restrain wisdom to yourself? And so they're claiming to know a lot. And in verse 11, which I just read, they came to claim to be specially sent by God as comforters. The idea of consolations there is them. They themselves. We are sent here. We're to help you, and you should listen to us. Notice the next verse. It talks about how you should be paying attention, that you should be uh, giving heed to what we have to say, because we are the leaders. We are the elders. We speak what's been passed on from generation to generation. And then they get real pointed with Job, and they accuse him of multiple sins. Go to verse 4. Yea, thou cast off fear and restrains prayer before God. For your mouth uttereth thine iniquity. You choosest 
choosest or choose the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemns you, not I. Yea, your own lips testify against you. Job, what you say, how you talk, your comments, you're, you're, you're just, you're wrong. You're wrong. Verse, verse 12, he talks about why does your heart carry you away? And, uh, and what do your eyes wink at? The idea is just kind of roll your eyes. You don't even listen. You don't even pay attention to us. Verse 13, you turn your spirit against God. You let such words come out of your mouth. Verse 16, how much more abominable and filthy is the man which drinks iniquity like water? They're referring to Job. And so they're claiming that this guy is just absolutely wrong and he's not respectful and he's not listening to them whom he should listen to. And so what they do is they do what is typical of all debates. They basically, they become, they become um, attacking character assassination. You know how teaching, you know, if you, if most of us, when he says, okay, you're in a discussion, an argument, we kind of pick up this idea that, well, to win the argument, you repeat what you have already said, but you just repeat it louder. Well, that's what's happening in verse 7, is that he's saying something that he has said before, and he makes comment, are you the first man that was born? Well, the answer is no. Or were you the, thou that made before the hills? No. They're ridiculing him. They're mocking him. You claim to know more than us. Are you older? Were you there when God designed things? Have you heard the secret things of God? Do you restrain wisdom to yourself? And the answer is no, 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 no. They're, they're, they're just mocking him and ridiculing him. In fact, if you go to chapter 17, look at verse 8. Job, when he responds, says, The way you have treated me, what you have done against me, how you have talked about me, how you have ridiculed me, the righteous person who is sitting there and watching it would get really upset. They would feel pity for me. They would think you're way out of line. That's how vicious this has gotten. That's how you know, the character assassination against Job has gone, and gone on for this period of time. Do you see any similarities to the people Jesus ran into? Was Jesus confronted and accused of doing vile, sinful things? Yes. You do your works by the power of Beelzebub. Was he attacked? Was he mocked by the leaders of that society, the traditionalists who looked back to the fathers? Yes. Did they, did they accuse him of, of, um, of deceiving the people? Yes. In fact, they were, they, there's so many similarities here. L let me go a step further. Okay? And show what some, some of the experiences beyond just the treatment that is taking place. He loses his companions. Job, when he starts talking back, he says, in verse 7 of chapter 16, But now he hath made me weary. You, God, have made desolate all my companions, my company. I am forsaken. I am alone. There's nobody with me. Is that what happened to Jesus in his sufferings? Watch this. Okay, verse 8, the great personal sufferings. You have filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. My leanness rise up against and bears witness to my face. And he goes on, talks, he says, God, you tear me in your wrath which you, who hated me. He says, you gnash me with your teeth. Mine enemy sharpens his teeth upon me, his eyes upon me. The idea is that I'm ridiculed. I feel like you have forsaken me, O Lord, that you've given up. He even makes a comment that is picked up in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a messianic prophetic verse that talks about what happens when Messiah comes and he's tortured. It comes from this next text. It comes from Job where he says, My enemies gaped upon me. They looked upon my wounds and they mocked me. 
He goes on, he says, there is the abuse, there's the animosity that comes from others. Go to chapter 16, verse 10. Look it down in the second half of the verse where he talks about, they have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. Does that remind you of what is talked about Jesus? How they struck him, how they beat him, how they ridiculed him at the cross? You go a little bit further. It says in verse 11, Job cries out to God, You have delivered me to the ungodly. You have turned me over into the hands of the wicked. Was Jesus turned over to the ungodly into the hands of the wicked? The answer is yes. He goes a little bit further. He says, I am in such agony. And several times in the text, he talks about the tears, how they were just, they were torrents of tears, how I was this strong man, but I was broken by the inner pain, the outer pain, the social pain. And it moved me to just agony and tears. Did Jesus ever get moved to deep tears because of his suffering? The answer is yes. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays with, with such intensity and there are such great tears that he, all, he physically then even bleeds. There's a lot of parallels here. He says in Job, he says, I am surrounded by mockers, by those who ridicule me. He makes a comment twice, as you can see. Look up the text. And then he makes the comment that I've been betrayed. I want you to jump down to verse 17. In verse 17 it reads, He that, fla- that speaks flattery to his friends. The Hebrew word for flattery is to lie so as to spoil. To lie about somebody so as to get gain. Is he referring that his friends are here and they are saying these things to get his property? That's what some conclude. I don't know if that's for certain, but this much we know. That Job is feeling like he's been betrayed by those who claim to be his friends. That they are saying one thing, but actually trying to spoil him, trying to hurt him. Was Jesus ever betrayed by a friend? Absolutely. He says in chapter 17, verse 6, he says, God has made me also a byword. That his people now are talking about me. They're, they're saying, look at him. You know, look at him. And they're speaking against me. But he says... And before time, I was a tabret. I was something that they wanted to hear. I was something that they wanted to listen to. But now, rather than listen, they'd rather spit on me. Was Jesus ever followed by great crowds that wanted to hear him? And then when he went into his his path of passion and suffering, did the crowds forsake him? Yes. Remember? Remember? Palm Sunday, what did they cry as he comes into the city? Hosanna, you know, the King, the Lord. And what did they cry on Thursday? Crucify him. Crucify him, or Friday. They crucify him. The fickleness of the crowds. The crowds who wanted to be around. Job is saying, that's what I've done. They used to come to me. We've talked about this before. They came to me for counsel. People would come to me for help. Now nobody wants to be near me. They consider me like a leper, that I am somebody that stay away from, to run away from. Why? Just because of all that suffering that's taking place. And so he concludes, God, you have abandoned me. I feel like, he thinks, he says, I feel like you've abandoned me. Look at verse 11. Read the whole section here in verse 16. God hath delivered me to the ungodly, turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has broken me asunder. 
He hath also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. It reminds you of an animal going after, a bigger animal going after a smaller one in an attack mode, grabbing by the neck and shaking. And he goes on, he says, He hath, he hath also taken me by the neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His archers, they've compassed me round about. He cleaves my reins asunder. He cuts me asunder and doth not spare. He pours out my gall upon the ground. He breaks me with the breach upon breach, that is, the wave after wave of attacks. He runs upon me like a giant, which they could do at, in battle at times, is they could cast their body right upon that person and, and run with their shield to try to knock them off their balance. He goes on, he says, I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin. I, in other words, it, it is so horrible, I don't even want to take off these, uh, these clothes of grief. I feel absolutely, absolutely beaten and defiled my horn talking about my, the, the top of my head, whether he's using verbiage about an animal or the crown of his head, the idea that he's just so low that his head is in the dust. Doesn't even feel like getting up anymore. My face is foul with weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. He is crying out. He is saying, God, God, I feel like you have abandoned me, that you have forsaken me, that I am totally alone and without you. Does it remind you of anything Jesus said in his sufferings? Yes, no. Where Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why? There's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of similarities that happen in this text. That even the psalmist later on picks up and uses as a prophetic wording to picture what happens to Jesus Christ. And as you go through the text, you see that there are some similarities. But you're going to see that Job responded like Jesus Christ did. In order to understand that, you have to go with me to the New Testament. You have to go to that passage that talks about Jesus responding when he was suffering. You have to go to 1 Peter. Not the story, but the summary of it that's given in the epistle of 1 Peter. All the way back in the end of your New Testament. Go to 1 Peter, and you'll see that he's talking in this text. And it is a phenomenal text. 1 Peter chapter 2. Jump down in the text, and we're going to verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And he's talking in this text about responding to difficulties and trials that come upon you when it comes from the government, when it comes upon you from other people. And he says this in verse 21. For even hereunto were you called. You were called to live a certain way when difficulties come into your life. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us a what? Leaving us an example. The word is only used here in the New Testament this one time. And it was the word that they used for tracing. When the teachers in the Greek society would do some teaching, what they would do is they would take a plaque or some clay and they would have this, you know, when it was still something that they could form, and they would write the alphabet in it. Or they'd write a sentence. You know, you know Jane ran after John. Jane ran up the hill. You know, those simple. And then what they would do in their teaching is they would give kids some form of uh, parchment, whatever, and they would trace the letters. You know, in schools today, we're a little bit more technical. We give the piece of paper, and it's the dotted line of the alphabet letter, and then the kids are supposed to trace over just to get the idea. That's what the word means. It means Christ has given us something that we are to, uh, we are supposed to follow 
specifically. Every dot, every line. And he says, okay, this is, this is what Christ did. In his sufferings, he left you and me an example. And he goes on, he said, that in order that we should do what? He gave us an example for one reason. To follow in, can you read it there? Okay, in his steps. Okay, there you go. Now watch what he says. Jesus did no sin. Okay, that it goes on. It says, so in, in his suffering, Jesus did not respond in a sinful fashion. It goes on, it says, there was no guile in his mouth. In his suffering, he didn't lie. He didn't come up with a story. He didn't try to lessen his suffering so that you know, it wouldn't be so painful. It goes on, it says, when reviled, he reviled not again. It means to, ca- to cast or to hurl some angry words at somebody, some hurtful words at somebody. When those soldiers were beating him, when the, uh, when the rabbis and the leaders were accusing him, when they were making statements about when they were yelling at him at the cross and they were saying vile and vulgar things, he didn't respond back with vile and vulgar things. He didn't get angry back. He didn't hurl back some, some cuss word, some form of mockery, some form of talking about them. He didn't do it. In fact, most of the time, what did Jesus do during his trials? What did he do with speaking? Most of the time, he's quiet. Most of the, quiet, most of the time. And so, he's, when he was threatened, it says he threatened not again. The passage goes on and says, He committed himself to him that judges righteously. So in the middle of his sufferings, instead of getting angry with God, instead of getting upset with God, with, instead of saying, God, you have, you have abandoned me and I'm going therefore abandon you, instead, he committed himself to God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when it was so painful and it was so exhausting and his friends were disappointing him, he remained loyal and he even prayed, let this cup pass, but nevertheless, let thy that's the example the example is given in this text and then it goes on and tells about this was where he was focused on who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree being dead to sins that we being dead to sins should live on he was selfless he was selfless he was doing this for our benefit while he was suffering suffering was because of you and me the suffering is because of our sins he did no sin he was totally innocent, totally, totally mistreated, but he was getting my treatment, your treatment, taking our place, taking, taking what should have happened to us. He was suffering, the abandonment, the, the turning the back upon uh, God, turning his back upon Christ because of him becoming sin for us. The point in the text is that was one of his actions in his sufferings. He didn't respond badly. He didn't get mad at others. He didn't strike out at others. He committed himself to doing what God wanted him to do, to doing what's right, and he was selfless. By the way, when he's hanging on the tree, who is he concerned about? The thief on the cross. Who is he concerned about? His mother. He's, who's he concerned about? You and me. He even prays, Father, for they know not. It's absolutely selfless. That's the example. 
That's a hypogrammon that he says we're supposed to follow in our sufferings, in our people problems. Don't, you know, you know, there's only maybe one or two here that have any problems, right? There's maybe, maybe no people bother you. He's saying in this text, when people bother you, when you feel like you're rejected, when you feel like they're mocking you, when you get counselors that say things that really upset you, how do you respond to them? When you have friends who betray you, how do you respond to them? When you have people who attack you, who accuse you, what do you do? We're supposed to follow the example of Christ. Now that example was set right around that time period, right roughly around 30 AD. We're going hundreds of years before that, and we're seeing Job follow that example when he was living hundreds of years before. Watch what Job does. Job makes a comment when we start in chapter 16. After he listens to Eliphaz make the accusations, we're back in Job, if I can get there with you. Back in Job, and we're back in chapter 16. Job starts off, and he's going to make comments. He's going to be very honest. Job answered Eliphaz, who has just said, we're smarter than you, listen to us, we know you've got some sin in your life, you know, we, we, you know, you know who do you think you are? We're smart, you're not. And so Job responds, and he says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. It's interesting, by the way, just for your, your, your tidbit of information, the word comforters in verse 2 is the same word in the previous chapter for the consolations of God in the Hebrew. Same word, that they thought they were comforters. They thought they were consolation, and, you know, coming from God. And he says, well, actually, you're miserable comforters. You, know, you, you really aren't helping me out. But here's the point. He goes on, he says, Shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldeneth thee that you would answer this way? Uh, Why would you say the things that you have said? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you. I could shake my head at you. But then he goes on, he says, But Instead, I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips would assuage or to relieve you of your guilt. In other words, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't treat treat you the way you're treating me. In other words, when you threaten, when you revile, I am not going to threaten or revile back. What an example. He's actually living out what Christ did. Before Christ was there. When somebody says something cruel, he doesn't feel like he has to respond cruelly back. You're a miserable comforter, but I I wouldn't say the things you would say. There's no way I'd treat you this way. Now, you and I might say that, but would we do it? Would we hold back the natural response and inclination to let him have it? Job didn't. Job didn't. In fact, verse, go down a little bit further. He says this as we go through the text. He makes a comment. He says in verse 17, Not for any injustice in my hands. Okay? The idea is I'm crying, I'm weeping, I feel broken. And it's not because I have done something that's unjust. It's not, and by the way, it's the same word that shows up later is of oppressing somebody, of hurting somebody, of striking out at somebody. He says, you guys cannot accuse me of striking at you. 
You cannot accuse me of, of doing something cruel to you. In fact, you guys can't accuse me of even being selfish in my prayers. Where he goes on, he says, also my prayer is pure. The Hebrew has the idea that purity isn't just the idea of, okay, without sin. Prayer should be without sin. It's the idea of, I am focused on helping others. I am dedicated when I pray. It's like when Jesus hung on the cross. Job is saying that in the middle of my sufferings, I'm still concerned about other people. I want to help other people. All you want to do is win the argument. All you want to do is to point out how smart you are. I'm trying to minister. I'm trying to help. I helped out my wife when she was struggling. We already looked at that. At the end of chapter, well, chapter 1 going into chapter 2 where he says, you know, do not speak as the foolish woman would speak. He's trying to assist her to come through her grief and her agony. They're not. They're just attacking. And Job can say, you can, you can look at my life. You can see this is true. I have not tried to bop you. I have not tried to hit you, though I'm really tempted to because of what you're saying about me. You just said, remember the previous chapter, your uh, previous lesson? You said my ten kids died because they were sinners. How would you like to have that guy sitting before you telling you? Your kids are a bunch of you know, no-goods. That's why they died. They're all a bunch of backslidden heathens. Wouldn't you want to take a club and let them have it? Job said, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. In fact, here's what I did. Chapter 17, verse 9. He goes on. He makes this comment that is just a tremendous comment in this text. He says, um, uh, I'm getting the right chapter here. The righteous also shall hold on to his way. He that has clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. In other words, even though, even though this is getting difficult, I'm not letting go. I'm going to be more and more committed in my dedication to the Lord. My righteous, my righteous intent, I will remain righteous. I will do. In fact, it's shown. If you go through the text and look up the verses that I have there. In chapter 16, he starts off with the personal pronoun, you, 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 and all of a sudden he looks at you. He does that on several occasions through this. He is in the middle of his conversation with him, turning to God and praying. In the middle of his conversation, turning to God and praying. When you're in the middle of an attack, when you're in the middle of a difficulty, you're in the middle of suffering because of something you don't understand why, and you're venting, in the middle of your venting, do you stop and turn to the Lord and pray? Or do you maintain the pouting? Do you maintain the attacks? Do you maintain striking out at others because you're miserable? Well, Job is a classic example of what Christ wants us to do and what Christ did when he came to this earth. That we are supposed to, when threatened, we're not supposed to threaten back. When reviled, we're not to revile. When we're, when, when we're in that, we're supposed to commit ourselves more and more unto the Lord, turn to the Lord, trust the Lord, and be others-minded. That's what Job is doing in this text. He is intending, even though he doesn't understand, God, why are you doing this to me? I will remain loyal to you. Do you remember that passage that we looked up last week? That he says, though he slay me, I will trust in him. And Job is saying in chapter 17, 16, 17, I feel like you're slaying me. I feel like you're targeting me. I feel like you've got me by the neck. I feel like you've come up and run up and knocked me down. But I will remain loyal to you. Yes, I'm struggling. Yes, I feel like quitting. But I will remain loyal. Yes, it hurts. Yes, I feel like I'm, I'm all alone. But I will remain loyal to you. That's Job. Just what Christ did 
and wants us to do, following in his steps. Be committed when it's hard. Be committed when it's difficult. Jesus even said, remember in John 12, when they come to him and they're trying to discourage him from continuing on, he says, though the hour is difficult, what should I do? This is why I came. I came for for this idea of suffering and giving my life. Should I say to the Father, I'm done? Jesus was committed and so was Job. In fact, watch his commitment to God. He uses some words that I'm going to be frank with you. I don't understand, and maybe you do, but every single author, and of the dozens of authors I looked up, they're not completely sure, because we don't know all of the Old Testament, ancient Near East uh, customs when it comes to some of the legalities. But he uses some phrases and some words. Chapter 16, he makes this comment. Also now, behold my witnesses in heaven... Again, I'm going to give you the best I can from others' explanation. The Hebrew word there is somebody who's seeing everything I do. In heaven, as I understand this text, in heaven there is somebody watching me, watching over me. There is somebody there. Now, now let, me, let me again preface this. He is talking to God in this section, and it's as if, God, will you hear me? Will you allow me to give my defense? God, will you explain for your, yourself to me? And he says, but while I'm in this mode, I know there's somebody. There's somebody in heaven watching over me. And he goes on, he says, with, that, with the idea, he says, and there's, my record is on high. The word is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament is, there is somebody who will speak on my behalf. There is somebody who will translate for me. There is somebody who will interpret for me. There is somebody who will explain. God, I'm standing here before you. I feel like you've given up. But I believe there's somebody in heaven with you who will speak to you to help me out. Who's he talking about? Who's he referring to? In fact, he goes a little bit further. Okay, He's saying in this text, I know, I know, I know There's a representative. There is somebody who's going to advocate me for me in heaven. And I'm trusting in him. And I'm relying upon him. And in the next few verses, he makes this comment. He says, so God, God, I'm I'm asking you to do this. Lay down now. Put me in a surety with you. What he means by that is there could be somebody who would pay his penalty, pay his bond, pay, pay so that it would be guaranteed he would get a fair hearing and whatever the outcome, that person would pay his penalty for it. God, would you, whoever you, that one, you, you my witness, you my interpreter, you in heaven, will you pay so that I am not found guilty? And then he goes on, he says, will you strike my hand? Will you strike hands with me? It's that idea of, will you make this a guarantee? Will you promise? And the answer expected is yes. So I know I have somebody in heaven who will advocate for me. I know that this person is willing to pay the court findings, the fees that will be found in heaven. I know that this one person is going to be so, so on my side, he will, he will give me his personal guarantee that he will be my benefactor. Who is he talking about? Who with God would advocate for Job? Who with God would pay Job's penalties or fines? Who with God is going to promise to make sure that God will hear Job and treat him properly? 
Oh, it must be Mary. It must be somebody at church. It must be some saint. Job has an inkling, and I don't know where he gets it, but Job has an inkling, there is a Redeemer in heaven. And he's not the only one. Take your Bibles and follow this. Another Old Testament setting. Please go there quickly with me. In Zechariah. In Zechariah, it's towards the very end of the the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah chapter 3, you have other Old Testament characters revealing that there is somebody in heaven who is going to help them, defend them, assist them, pay for whatever is needed so that they will be pure and righteous before God Almighty. We read about that story in Zechariah chapter 3. In Zechariah 3, it's a story about Joshua. He is not the Joshua who led the battle of Jericho. This is years later, this is Joshua, a high priest of Israel, who is named after that namesake from years ago. This is Joshua, the high priest, representing the nation of Israel. And there's a picture of him standing in heaven, Zechariah 3, and he is covered with filthy, filthy garments. The uh, picture is Israel represented by Joshua, stands before God and they are filled with sin. They are filled with, with all kinds of complications because they have done wrong. They have disobeyed God. Watch the story. Just let it, as I read it. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, a unique individual in heaven, somebody that was close to God Almighty. And Satan was standing at the right hand to resist him to challenge Joshua and the the angel of the Lord. The Lord said unto Satan, the Lord, oh, by the way, now you have two people in that standing, in that setting, who are called Lord, with capital letters. You have the one who is speaking and calling upon the other one who's on the throne. Who are these people? God Almighty. And who's the other one? Christ. Christ. It's Christ. The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him. That is, the angel of the Lord, Christ, speaks to the others who are there. Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you. I will clothe you with a change of raiment. And I said... Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. That is the Lord speaking. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. And the angel of the Lord, you know, he defends and he speaks on behalf. Who is this person in heaven that is pictured in the Old Testament in the prophet that he is defending the Jewish people before God Almighty? Who's their advocate? Who's the one providing for them? Who's the one who has seen all, who has been the witness, who's observed everything and now is paying for Israel's forgiveness? It's the same one that we have in heaven today. It's the same Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same one who continues to make intercession, to plead our case when we are accused. You do realize, according to Revelation, that we are accused before God night and day. By who? By Satan. Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Who defends us before God? We read in the New Testament that who is he that condemns? 
It is Christ that, that judges or finds guilt. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of, the, of God, who makes intercession for us. He pleads our case. When Satan points out where you and I have failed, and, and, and we say, oh God, please forgive us. Who pleads for us to be forgiven? It's not us. God doesn't owe us anything. If God gave us what we deserve, we'd end up in hell. Who is the one that sways God the Father to forgive us? It's Jesus Christ. He is the one who sees all. He is the one who defends all of us. He is the one who provides the, the payment for our sins. As if he's standing in heaven and when things happen, he just says, Father, put that to my account. Thank God for that Christ. Thank God that he intercedes. No wonder he made this comment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father but by me. Think this through. Think this through. One day, we're going to be in heaven. We, are, we can say, we can absolutely be sure we're going to be in heaven. How do we know that? Because we're so good? Are you kidding me? Us good? What goodness do we have to deserve heaven? Oh, we go to church a lot. Oh, we smile a lot. So what? We also sin a lot. How do we know for sure we're going to heaven? It's not because of us. It's because wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. Keep them saved. Keep them saved. Keep them forgiven. Them that come to him. How? Seeing Jesus Christ ever lives to make intercession for them. Us. We're going to get to heaven not because of uh, we, we made some belief statement in Jesus and then now we're just good enough people. We're getting to heaven because of Jesus, period. That's it. It's Jesus. You and I who have prayed and asked Christ to forgive us sometime initially, we are kept saved by Jesus Christ, not by us. You know, you have to ask yourself this question. Okay, who was Job trusting in? That's the third fact in this text. Job was trusting and relying upon Jesus Christ. Who do you rely upon? Who are you relying upon? Okay, who or what are you going to stand before God Almighty? Who or what are you going to look to and say, well, this is my defense. I've sinned. I violated your word. I've lied. I've, I've, I've lost my temper. I gossiped against people. I may have had illicit thoughts. I, you know, I disobeyed parents. By the way, all those things I just said are part of the initial Ten Commandments. Sometimes I let things get in my way before worshiping and praying to you. I, I even let you know, video games take place instead of worshiping you with reading the Bible and praying every day. I was more faithful to my phone than I was to your word. And God, when I stand before you and I am humbled by your holiness and your majesty and your righteousness, I'm going to feel like a worm. Who and what am I going to look to? Some are going to say, oh, wait a minute. It's my family. My family, my parents are good. My mom and dad were good. They went to church, and so I'm going to rely upon them. Problem with family is they're just as humbled with their own sin. Some are going to say, well, wait a minute, I know I'm going to get there because I, I've done good works. 
You know, I, I've done some nice things. I, I've been pleasant at the store. I, I threw money in when, the, you know, that red kettle at Christmas time. You know, I made meals for some people. Some are going to say, well, I was baptized as a baby. By the way, baptism as a baby is never found in the Bible. So you're relying on something that's not even biblical. But some of you say, well, I'm going to rely upon my baptism. Baptism never got anybody to heaven. Ever and never will. Because baptism is relying upon yourself. Oh, I'm going to rely upon a church, a denomination. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Catholic. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Lutheran. I'm an Episcopalian. No church can get you into heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by... Not a church. Some of you are going to say, well, I'm going to rely upon donations that I met or I made, or I'm going to rely upon being charitable to the poor, or I'm going to rely upon some other saint that I pray to. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by. Like Job, you and I need to trust in Christ as the only defense attorney in heaven who can speak and plead our case. We need to rely upon Christ and Christ alone for him, for our forgiveness of sins. As believers in Christ and as we go on in our life and our walk with the Lord, we need to rely upon Christ day by day and saying, Jesus, please, please forgive me my sin. If you have never ever to this point come to a spot where you realize it is Jesus and Jesus only that can provide you forgiveness, this day you need to ask Christ. You need to do what Job did. You need to call to the Father in the middle of your trials and troubles and problems and say, I know I have one in heaven who is a witness who sees all that I've done. I want you, please, to defend me. I want you to be the one to pay my penalty for my sins, which you did on the cross. You need to call upon Christ. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, not a church, not your own good works, not yourself. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be... Okay. There's something else in this text. For those of you who have already done that. You, like Job, need to follow the example of Christ. You need to respond to people problems, which maybe, again, one or two of you have. You need to react the way, Jesus, the way Job did. You need to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. You need to act like Christ. For instance, when all of a sudden you feel the time pressures of work and schedule, is it okay to be cranky and miserable to everybody else? How would Christ have responded? When his... his situation was where they started saying something insensitive to you. You need to stop and say, what would Christ have done? What did Jesus do? When all of a sudden in your situation where you aren't feeling good, when you all of a sudden, you know, when, when things are, aren't going your way, and it's all about you, you need to do what Christ did. Start ministering to others. Guarding what you say. When your family is putting you under stress or your whole family is under... You need to provide your entire family an example of what would Christ do? How would Christ respond when he opens up this bill? How would Christ respond when they cut me off on the road? How would Christ respond when all of a sudden somebody said that insensitive thing to me? When people are rude to you and they treat you harshly or they don't care. Okay, fine. 
get rude back, but you're not following the example of Christ. You're doing your own thing. When people are saying things, Christ said we should turn the other cheek. When all of a sudden you, you, you're in the middle of a, of a difficult situation, you should be doing what Jesus did. Go to the Father, committing yourself to Him, praying to Him, not pouting, not attacking back. When somebody threatens, portray Christ. Bottom line is you and I need to this week ask ourselves time and time and time and time again, is this what Jesus would do? Is this what Jesus would do? Is this how Jesus would respond? Adonai Dredson, his wife is reading an article about him. This is in the latter years of his ministry. And the article talks about how Judson is following so much after the example of the apostles. He's a modern day apostle Paul. He's a modern day apostle Peter. And went on to talk about how he was so much like the apostles. Upset him. Absolutely upset him, that article. It's not because he didn't like that they were commending him, but he was frustrated because they compared him to the apostles. His comment was, I don't want to be like Paul or a mere man. I want to be like Christ. I want people to look at me and say, he's following Christ. He's a real Christ one, Christian there was a missionary coming back from China in the 40s. His name, Oswald Galter. Galter. Coming back, and as he's going, it's coming Christmas season. He doesn't have much money. He has his tickets and just a little bit of cash to feed himself. So he's there in Shanghai getting on a different boat. He had a layover of a day. And he thought, okay, it's Christmas season. I'll use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. So he found some dock workers that he started talking to about Christ, and they ridiculed. They mocked him. They just told him, get away, you Westerner. We have our own gods. He said, well, have you ever heard of Christmas? They said, we've heard of it, but we don't celebrate it because we're not anything like a follower of Jesus. And he said, well, you know, at Christmas, we give gifts. If, if you could have any gift... What would the gift be? And they mocked him, and some of them even threw some stuff at him. And he persisted. He said, seriously, if, if you could have something, he said, we would like some of those German bagels, you know, whatever it was, you know, some German food. And so he took what little money he had, went down to the other side of the dock, bought them a bunch of this food, this bread, bagels, whatever they were, and he brought these, these treats back to them. And they were flabbergasted that he would do that. So was his co-workers when he got back on the boat the next day to sail. Because now he had no money for food on the ship. And one of his co-workers rebuked him and made this comment. He said, you wasted your money. How foolish could you be to waste your money on people who don't believe in Jesus? They don't even care about Jesus. Golter's response, he says, but I do care about Jesus. And I do believe in Jesus. Therefore, I need to act like Jesus no matter what they say or how they act. What about you this week? Will you be Christ-like no matter what others say, what others do, what other your problem? Will you say, I will follow Christ? Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And as we wind down the service here in these next moments... You're here and you say, I have never called upon Christ. I, I need that defense attorney. I didn't realize he was willing to provide me that free defense before God Almighty. And I want to know how to make sure he will plead my case before the Father. What must I do to have his forgiveness?